Welcome to Same Surgeon, Different Life, part of the STS Surgical Hot Topics podcast. This series focuses on demystifying cardiothoracic surgery and presenting the remarkable backstories of surgeons from a variety of backgrounds and in various career stages that have led them to become the face of CT surgery. I'm Dr. David Tom Cook, and in each episode, Dr. Tom Varghese and I will get to know more about our colleagues, the obstacles, the success stories, trade-offs, and pivotal moments that have shaped their careers as well as their personal missions. The opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the views of the Society of Thoracic Surgeons. The program will return after a message from our sponsor. I'm Dr. Sandeep Kandar, a thoracic surgeon from Virginia Cancer Specialists, with a message about the importance of referring patients with resectable stage 1B through 3A non-small cell lung cancer to a medical oncologist consistent with national guidelines. I believe that all of these patients should be referred to a medical oncologist early in their treatment pathway. Using biopsy samples taken before or during surgery, medical oncologists should order guideline-recommended molecular testing to help inform therapy decisions. In my opinion, it is important to talk to these patients about recurrence rates after surgery, as well as molecular testing, which may impact treatment decisions for eligible patients. These conversations should happen either before surgery or shortly thereafter. Overall, a multidisciplinary team-based approach may help drive informed decisions so patients can receive the right treatment options for them. This content is sponsored by AstraZeneca. Hello, everyone. We're back. Welcome to the second season of the Society of Thoracic Surgeons podcast, Same Surgeon, Different Light, brought to you by the Workforce of Diversity and Inclusion. This series, hosted by Tom Varghese and I, brings you the origin stories of amazing STS members, cardiothoracic surgeons who are taking our specialty to incredible new levels. We demystify our specialty with the unique histories and points of views of our guests. Our second season kicks off with a conversation with Dr. Valerie Rouge. Dr. Rouge is a mentor of mine, as well as countless other cardiothoracic surgeons. She takes us on a journey describing her experience growing up in New York City and her career that spans Seattle, Houston, and back to New York, where she set the standard as a surgeon investigator in thoracic oncology, finding cures for patients with lung cancer, and becoming president of the American College of Surgeons. We also learn her perspective on what young surgeons should do today to maximize their careers. It is my pleasure to learn more about such an amazing cardiothoracic surgeon. Please enjoy. Welcome. This is another episode of Same Surgeon, Different Light. This interview with Dr. Roosh will kick off our second season. Dr. Roosh is the minor family chair for intrathoracic cancers and vice chair for clinical research at the Department of Surgery at Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center uh, in New York. She's also the immediate past president of the American College of Surgeons, and in 2019 was the Earl Backen Scientific Achievement Award recipient by the Society of Thoracic Surgeons. She is internationally esteemed thoracic surgeon, researcher, mentor, and sponsor. And I'm excited today to welcome her here to our show. Hi, Val, how are you doing? I'm great, thanks. And thank you so much for inviting me. And I really appreciate the opportunity to contribute to this wonderful series. Well, great. It's our pleasure having you here. How are things in New York? Well, we're all back to work full time. And um, despite all the COVID related issues and doing well. You know, we're, we're, you know, taping this 
during the, the COVID-19 uh, pandemic, uh, we just hit that sort of Delta strain peak. How has COVID affected uh, Memorial Sloan Kettering and really the care of the cancer patient and, and, and even cancer research? Well, of course, in uh, the spring of 2020, we went through the same type of shutdown for elective procedures that many institutions went through. Subsequently, I think uh, I have to say that my institution really did a superb job of organizing all of that. And, and we had to really feel our way as to the best approach for the cancer patient and literally evaluate on a patient-by-patient basis who could undergo surgery safely, who really needed an operation, who could have an alternative treatment or a deferred uh, operation with usually systemic therapy pending some improvement in the COVID rates. And we dropped our elective Uh, surgical volume down to 20% of its normal status, which was pretty tough to do at that time, and then have uh, gradually been gearing back up. And I think that we're pretty much at our pre-COVID level at this time, and we have in place all of the appropriate uh, safety precautions and have done a very good job also in our uh, patient vulnerable patient population of immunizing, of vaccinating our patients uh, where they were unable initially to get access to vaccinations in their community. Of course, that's changed now and it's widely available. Did you see changes in stage of presentation you know, now that we're sort of in the, the, the back nine of this pandemic, people delaying their care and yeah, we, we definitely did. And, and also a lot of our patients uh, move out of the New York area, go down to Florida during the wintertime. And uh, many of them got sort of caught uh, outside the New York metropolitan area and trying to navigate that issue was a little tricky at times. So I, uh, there definitely been delays in diagnosis. And I think it'll be a few years before we really can assess the full ramifications of the pandemic in that regard. What about your clinical trials at MSK and enrollment? Well, we had them completely shut down for a couple of months and then tried to uh, reopen and we were at full speed, so to speak, in our clinical trial enterprise. And just to put that in some context, at any given point in time, we have somewhere between 800 and 1,000 active clinical trials at MSKCC. Uh, so that just to give you that perspective, but we're now back up and running. Uh, I was talking with one of my colleagues in hepatobiliary surgery just a couple of days ago. And interestingly, they uh, were doing a vaccine trial for pancreatic cancer patients, partly in affiliation with BioNTech. It's the same, uh, same uh, basic vaccine or type of vaccine, mRNA vaccine is, is used for COVID. And even with the pause in clinical trial accrual, they were able to pick back up and get that done ahead of projected accrual time. So for key trials that have very appealing therapeutic concepts behind them, uh, we've managed to 
really stay on target and get them done. Uh, we also developed a specific COVID-19 clinical trial uh, rapid review group during the pandemic, uh, really focusing on trials in the cancer population that were specific around the issue of uh, COVID-19 and, and its effects on cancer patients. So we would do a rapid protocol review. And since I'm part of the bigger review process for protocols in, in general, the uh, main scientific review committee, uh, that whole process put all of those COVID-19 related clinical trials on a fast track for a review to get them activated as quickly as possible. Well, your name has really become synonymous with the the cogent application of uh, clinical trials, uh, not only at MSK Cancer Center, but with your work in SWOG. And we're going to get to that in a little bit. But, you know, every superhero has an origin story. And you, you mentioned the, uh, the metropolitan New York area. And it may come to surprise for individuals that you were actually born and raised in Manhattan. True. I'm one of the few natives. <laughs> so you can give us insight on the subway and, and, but you, uh, your father was a, uh, physician and, um, uh, you spent time in the operating room as a operating technician. Yes. My father was an otolaryngologist. He was actually, uh, trained as an allergist before world war II and then served in the uh, Navy medical corps during world war II. And when he came back did a second residency in ENT. And although my older brother and sister are in no way connected with, with medicine, you know, I did have an entree to gain some exposure and experience. And in, during college, worked uh, one year in a bacteriology lab at one of the hospitals here in the city, and then did a couple of summers working as a relief OR technician and so that gave me an, a nice inside view of what happens in an operating room. I think it really um, sparked my interest. You went to a French language bilingual school in France, sorry, in Manhattan, when you were in, in, in grade school. Right. Yeah. So my family background on my father's side is predominantly Swiss. Uh, he was born in this country um, and educated here, but and obviously I was born here, but because of that, he felt very strongly that it was important to be at least bilingual. And since so I ended up going to the Lycée Français, which is one of the, well, it's the main French uh, school here in the city, established in the 1930s, actually. And uh, the curriculum is all according to the French uh, curriculum, which is a, it's a universal curriculum that's available not only in France, but in many of the Francophone countries around the world that uh, originally constituted part of the French colonies, Africa, Southeast Asia, everywhere around the world. So you could go anywhere in those countries and have the same curriculum that you have in France and take the same uh, exit exam at the end of secondary school uh, that you would take in France. And in that system, French is considered your primary language. English is considered your, your first, second language. And then you're obligated to take at least one additional language, uh, which for me was Russian. And uh, I also had five years of Latin as part of that education. So if I could count 
So you know, if we count Latin, you know five <laughs> languages. I took German in college and I became pretty fluent. Uh, pretty much forgotten a lot of that, unfortunately, and I've forgotten most of my my Russian. But yeah, at one point I, I was uh, actually pretty fluent, really fluent in three languages. Then uh, from graduation from high school, you went on to Vassar. Yes. Yeah. Tell us a little bit about your experience there. Well, to some extent, I was following family tradition. Uh, my grandmother graduated from Vassar in 1902. My father's younger sister graduated in 1933, and I graduated in 71. And I had a cousin who graduated uh, a few years later. It's a terrific liberal arts education. They've got a strong science component as well, but it's it really uh, is an education that helps you think broadly and logically, and I think uh, sort of prepares you for the world. So I was very happy to be there. You know, when we think of you, we, we think of sort of that analytical skill set that, that takes, that designs the clinical trials and then uh, translate them to case, patient care, and then we see actual patient outcomes. And, you know, I get students in my office all the time who want to go into medicine and want to go into uh, surgery. And then the assumption is that they need to focus on the sciences. But there is value in the liberal arts education. And how did the liberal arts education prepare you and make you what you are today? Oh, I think it's extraordinarily important. First of all, at least in that era, this probably doesn't pertain today, but in that era, the first multiple choice exam that I ever took were the SATs. So every single exam all the way through the baccalaureate exam, which is the exit exam at the end of secondary school in the French system, was an essay-based exam. Consequently, that teaches you to, to think to have an organized approach and to be able to write well. And many, many times I've found in uh, mentoring younger surgeons that they have, do not have that kind of liberal arts background and really struggle to uh, write papers because they've not had that sort of training. So I think that's a very important component. And the other thing is medicine is the art and science. And having a, a broader based view of the world and uh, an interest in subjects around and outside of medicine, I think is extremely important for how we conduct ourselves, uh, relate to patients and generally develop our careers. You know, it's interesting that you talk about writing and, and in academic medicine, in academic sciences, there's so much writing, whether uh, it's writing papers, uh, writing grants, protocols and the ability to do that in a, in a quick manner, in, in a way that's understandable to read. It seems like a liberal arts education sets someone up to, for success in that regard. Absolutely, absolutely. So uh, after graduation from college, you had a choice. You can take all these languages that you've learned and or know, and it sounds like head to Europe to potentially do translation school or take the easy way out and go to med school. So what, what, how did you make that decision and, and, and how did you solve that fork in the road? Well, I thought very seriously about going to Europe for higher education because I could have gone either to France or to Switzerland. 
And if I'd wanted to go to medical school, I could have had that medical education for a tiny fraction of the cost that is required here in this country. And I think the other issue is that um, I medicine wasn't the only thing that I was interested in. And so I thought very much about uh, other opportunities. I mean, language, language skills being one of those. And in fact, the first year of medical school here at, at Columbia in this country, I, I was so sort of disenchanted by the environment that I really thought about dropping out and going and doing something differently. What, what my, was it about the environment? I think if you come from a place like Vassar that is extremely open to dialogue and uh, I, I'd say people were, you know, they were genuinely interested in learning and having and open to discussion and different points of view. And that's absolutely not the environment, I think, anywhere in, in medical school. Uh, it's obviously uh, a frame shift to a highly competitive, very focused, goal-oriented, uh, sometimes not so nice yeah. <laughs> environment. Yeah. yeah. Um, extremely different. And, but somehow uh, in that environment at Columbia, you decided to become a surgeon. What, what was that deciding factor in medical school? Well, I'd had this little bit of exposure during the summer. So I sort of knew what went on in operating rooms. And I really liked the combination of cognitive abilities, technical abilities, uh, decisiveness that's required that goes beyond what you can do in most internal medicine-based specialties. And from there, you went to Seattle. And I remember when I was a resident applying for, for fellowship, I had a conversation with, with Dr. Ed Verrier when he was at Seattle and he was telling me an anecdote about the spouse of an applicant from the East Coast. And that person said to them, well, Seattle is, is not that far from Japan, from all uh, respects uh, and perceptions from the East Coast. So you go from one extreme in New York City to the Pacific Northwest. How was that transition for you? Yeah, I think it's actually one of the best things that I ever did. It came about because towards the end of medical school, I married one of my medical school classmates whose avocation was mountain climbing. He'd worked in uh, mountain rescue for the park service and in uh, outward bound in, uh, in Oregon. And he really, really uh, disliked uh, New York specifically, but uh, the East Coast as opposed to the Western part of the States. Mm. And long story short, we ended up applying as a couple everywhere west of the Rockies. Well, Den Denver and West. <laughs> and we were uh, looking for residency programs that excelled in both anesthesiology and surgery. And there were not that many. And the ones that were sort of at the top of the list in those days were University of Washington and UCSF. So those are the two places that met the criteria. And we did a number of away rotations as fourth year students just to get the taste of the environment and Certainly in those days, I think the whole atmosphere in 
Western institutions and certainly at the UW, as opposed to what I saw here in New York was vastly different, especially if you're a woman uh, going into surgery. And there were very, very, very few women in those days. And why cardiothoracic surgery? What led you to make that choice? Yeah, well, I think this is a, a, a career by serendipity. And it also demonstrates how incredibly important mentors can be uh, as you move through your career. Uh, I arrived out in Seattle thinking, well, you know, maybe uh, vascular surgery was pretty appealing. And then I did two months back to back on the uh, at the VA. And uh, in those days, we took care of not only the vascular patients, but also the amputation service. Mm-hmm. So you saw everything from the aorta by fem down to the fem far away to the amputees. And after two months of that, I was less enthused. And then I thought about a number of other specialties as I went along in my residency. But in that era, you had the opportunity to rotate through the cardiothoracic service, both as a junior resident and then as a fourth year. And when I did my fourth year rotation, the person who was the division chief at that time was a a very dynamic individual, a superb clinician uh, who just parenthetically happened to have been the cardiac resident at Columbia when I was a third year medical student. And he gave me opportunities to learn and grow and actually went so far as to help me close an ASD. I was on cloud nine doing that case, you can imagine. And then he persuades me to think about CT surgery as a specialty. So it just shows if you've got someone who's, who's a really good teacher and a good mentor, how that can redirect your thought process. And you stayed in Seattle for a fellowship, for a cardiothoracic fellowship, and then ended up in Texas. How, how, did, how did that transpire? So another instance of uh, serendipity. I originally went into CT to do cardiac, and in that era, there were no thoracic tract residencies. So I did uh, what everyone did, which was 18 months of cardiac and six months of thoracic. And as I moved into my thoracic rotation, I realized that I really liked the thought process, the longitudinal care, the independence of practice relative to cardiac, where you were responsible for making many of the decisions and the complexity, even in those days, it was had a lot of uh, complexity in terms of uh, what you had to do evaluating a patient and, and doing the operation. And then um, towards the end of my training, I was offered a faculty position. And uh, because my husband was had uh, joined the anesthesiology faculty there, we were really committed to staying, but I didn't feel prepared to teach general thoracic surgery with that kind of limited experience. And so literally one day I was in the library looking at the annals of thoracic surgery in the ad section in the back. And I saw an ad for uh, MD Anderson for a fellowship. And I went to one of our senior surgical oncologists who had trained at MD Anderson and asked him about this. And he said, oh yes, he knew the division chief down there and he could facilitate an interview. And so I went on down and they said, oh my goodness, you've finished cardiothoracic residency, we'll hire you for a year as a faculty associate, which is essentially an instructor, and pay you twice the salary. So that was that. that. Uh, And I had only a year that I could spend doing this because I was committed to go back to Seattle. So that's how I landed down there. 
you know, I, I think it, it, it really highlights sort of a theme that, that we're going to see about mentorship and sponsorship. And there you identified a sort of a, a perhaps a, a gap in your, that you felt was a gap in your knowledge and you wanted to expand further uh, by going to MD Anderson and you reached out to a faculty member or mentor who had understanding of that program and then sponsored you by making a phone call. Yeah, exactly right. And there you met uh, Dr. Clifton Mountain, who we all know from advances in staging for, for lung cancer. How was Dr. Mountain influential in your career? Well, he, he was uh, very senior in his career and, and really known worldwide. And I think that also ultimately opened some doors for me as I finished my experience down there. He was doing a lot of traveling the year that I was there uh, because of his leadership positions. But some of the other senior surgeons down there really had tremendous clinical experience and clinical wisdom. And I learned uh, a lot from them, even though I was functioning as a junior faculty member. The other thing, really, really important takeaway from my experience down there was it was the first time that I had seen uh, multidisciplinary management of cancer in a very uh, day-by-day manner. So every time we went to clinic, the clinic was a joint clinic with medical oncology and thoracic surgery together in the same space. We saw patients together. We did a mini tumor board at the end of each day. Um, and I had never seen that kind of close collaboration before, and it really opened my eyes to the optimal care of the cancer patient. So from there, you went back to Seattle and took a faculty position in Seattle. And did you do cardiac surgery as well or, or, or just pure thoracic at that point? Yeah. So my original goal had been to work at the VA because I thought I would be able to do both cardiac and thoracic and also have some uh, protected time for research and get access to research funding there. But those were not the needs of the department when I got back. Uh, the department needed coverage of trauma at Harborview. <laughs> so I was covering trauma at night and elective cancer cases at the VA and the university and one of our other affiliated hospitals during the day. And it yeah. got pretty crazy. Well, it sounds like, uh, you know, if you work at Harborview, you eventually become a president of the American College of Surgeons. So that's probably a good, good, good place to land. But somehow your career then became focused on cancer. And you were introduced to the Southwest Oncology Group or SWOG from there. True. You know, another again, another uh, turn by serendipity and another example of the importance of mentoring. So I'd had that oncology interest as I returned from MD Anderson. And so I started uh, collaborating pretty closely with the medical oncologists at the U. And the chief of HEMOC at that time was Bob Livingston, who happened to be the chair of the SWOG Lung Committee. And I had, as a resident, been peripherally involved in the uh, trials being conducted by the Lung Cancer Study Group, which was one of the early cooperative groups focused primarily on adjuvant therapy trials for lung cancer. So I was a little bit familiar with the process. And Bob had been functioning as the co-PI for the Seattle group 
in LCSG and he really didn't have time to do it. And he handed it off to me. And then he said, and oh, I need a surgeon to come and work with us in the SWOG Lung Committee on multimodality trials. And that's how I started off in the cooperative groups. And I, I really, it was learning on the job because um, unfortunately I, I had no formal training, but I watched what the medical oncologists were doing. And I looked at the way protocols were written. And I thought, well, gee, if they can do that, I can do that too. So I plunged in and, and with uh, guidance started to write and conduct clinical trials and had a lot of help from and guidance from Bob Livingston in that regard. You know, it, it's, it's interesting. You, you mentioned that you had no formal clinical training. You know, I'll, often I, I, I see this almost like the, the, the lawyers in like Lincoln's day, right? Some lawyers went to law school. Uh, some lawyers like Lincoln did apprenticeships and learned the same skill sets. Today, we see a lot of trainees getting master's degrees and other uh, advanced degrees after MD. You didn't do that, yet you, you are potentially one of the most productive general thoracic surgeons of all time. Have times changed? Do we do, do our trainees need to get those higher de- degrees to make an impact in academia, or is it how you prepare yourself and how you strategize for your goals? Yeah, I think it's actually really important to get those higher degrees. Uh, what it does is to give you the theoretical and the didactic backbone that you can't simply get from learning on the job. And absolutely, if I had to do my career over again, I would seek out that kind of opportunity. Now, those master's degrees in clinical investigation or biostat and epi or any other similar areas are much, much more available today than in the era in which I was uh, starting my career. But for every trainee and young faculty member that I have mentored as a division chief or as a senior surgeon, I have really strongly encouraged them to go down that path because it helps prepare them to launch their academic career. Those Degrees usually don't provide you all of the practical skills about how to conduct a clinical trial and how to analyze it, but they're a very good start. And I think it's time well spent. And I really hate to see young surgeons uh, spinning out of their general surgery training, for instance, for two years and not having had the opportunity to acquire those skills. So I really strongly encourage it. Should that be built in? Where, where, where should that occur? Should it be built into the, the surgical training period? It should it be built into the medical school period? Or once one graduates and, and uh, is an early career faculty member? Well, I think you can do it at any of those levels, but I think ideally doing it within the general surgery training is a good place to do it. And unlike laboratory training where you get maybe two years of exposure and then it went by the time you're ready to come back to it, you really have to completely uh, retool your skill set because the lab science and lab techniques have moved on. The skills that you learn if in a, for masters in uh, clinical investigation or something similar along those lines remain. Mm-hmm. And you can build on them and you can add to them by taking some clinical trials courses, of which there are now quite a few, to build, put in the place, the building blocks for running and conducting clinical trials 
And the medical oncologists, as you know, have this as an intrinsic part of their medical oncology training. It just, it happens. Every top program in the country has this. So I think we do a disservice to our trainees by not making sure that they really have this kind of building block for their career. I have helped some of the younger faculty members that I've overseen in the course of my career do that within the first couple of years of their their, uh, time on staff. And we now have a program at MSK in conjunction with the Gerstner School, which is our graduate school, that is available for selected uh, faculty members. It's a little bit trickier in terms of time allocation and being able to focus on it, but you can also do it that way if you haven't done it as a resident. I see. Do you, do you hire new faculty into sort of like an intramural K or, or equivalent? Yeah, the, uh, those of our faculty who've gone into the Gerstner School program, which is a relatively new program, have had that as a, a formal part of their career development plan with a formal set aside for non-clinical time and an expectation that they will complete the program and have a product to show for it. The product is usually a master's level thesis of some sort. So it's just the way you would do if you plan to support a younger faculty member in developing a laboratory program. So, you know, you you speak of uh, these opportunities at uh, MSK Cancer Center. 1988 was a big year for MSK. That was the year that you arrived on campus. How did you join the, end up joining the faculty there? Well, Bob Ginsberg, who was chief at uh, Toronto, uh, he and I had worked together in the lung cancer study group, and uh, the MSKCC was looking for a new faculty member, and he gave my name to Niall Martini, who was in the chief at Memorial, and I just got a phone call, please come interview for a job. And uh, I, it was an offer that I really couldn't, refuse, even though I had no particular intention of returning to New York. But I was being asked to do lots of different things in Seattle with, unfortunately, at that time, not very good support. And I really saw that my academic career was going to flounder. And this coming back to New York to Memorial was going to allow me to really focus full-time on oncology and work in an environment uh, which was vastly different from where I worked every day in Seattle. And what was Harold Varmus at the time? Was he president and CEO of MSK? Not yet. Paul Marks was. And, and then uh, when Paul Marks retired, Harold took over. So you have talked in the past that in 2004, discovery of EGFR mutations in lung cancer was a transformative event not only for oncology, but specifically thoracic surgeons. How did you contribute to sort of that explosion of targeted therapy? Well, before I became the service chief uh, at MSK in, in the year 2000, I had been working in collaboration with one of the lab heads, really on, on molecular characterization of, of lung cancer and in a, a way that was pretty simple, but still not very exploited in that era, which was to acquire tissues actually from my own patients as I did the resections 
to snap freeze them from the operating room and then you know purify the nucleic acids and and then a- analyze them and uh, and correlate the molecular findings with the clinical and pathological findings. Uh, not earth shattering today, but pretty unusual in that era to have that kind of material available. And actually, I made an observation that got published in clinical cancer research that is still correct, but missed the boat scientifically. So the observation was that RNA overexpression was common, especially in more so in squamous cell carcinoma than in adenocarcinoma, but did not correlate with survival while still true. It's just that we, we didn't realize the impact that, that, that mutations were important, not overexpression. Anyway, I continued to create a tissue bank. Uh, and of course, these days, all of that is done in a, a very high level manner through our Department of Molecular Pathology, but those resources did not exist in that era. And so when the observation about the importance of EGFR mutations was made sort of simultaneously at MSK, the Farber and the MGH, Harold Varmus wondered if we had high quality human tissue upon which to validate this observation and any, any related clinical database. And of course we did because I had been collecting it for a decade. And so very, very quickly, we were able to take the material that we had and also align it with the clinical pathological information that was already in our database. And some of the work done from those resources was key in making the observation about the emergence of the T790 mutations and resistance to EGFR uh, tyrosine kinase inhibitors. And then you look over sort of the past decades, and you know, we have data that shows that, you know, for cancer across the board, but especially for lung cancer, our survival, our patient survival has improved. Now, obviously that's multifactorial, you know, there's smoking cessation, there's um, better types of surgery, you know, there is, um, you know, explosion of clinical trials, but there's an explosion in data on targeted therapy, immunotherapy. In the last few decades, that's really been focused on advanced stage lung cancer. But now we have FDA approval for adjuvant therapy in like 1B stage 2A patients who are EGFR positive. We have FDA approval for immunotherapy for uh, patients who received new adjuvant chemo radiation and esophageal cancer. What does the thoracic surgeon need to do? And is the, the position and role of a thoracic surgeon changed? 50 years ago or 100 years ago, all we did was empyemas and tuberculosis. Are the thoracic surgeon of next year, two years, is that person different than the thoracic surgeon of today? Absolutely. I think that it is really pivotal that the thoracic surgeon of the future be able to function with a much broader knowledge of tumor biology if, in terms of cancer management. Obviously, our technology and our techniques have changed radically in the last 20 years. And we now know from 
prospective clinical trials, specifically this past year, the VIOLET trial done in the UK, how the surgical technique, and specifically VATS lobectomy compared to open lobectomy, has a direct impact on quality of life and outcomes in a way that's been sort of touched upon in various many retrospective studies, but I think is now unequivocal. So the thoracic surgeon of today and of tomorrow needs to be extremely open-minded about changes in technology and and how to evolve what we do in a responsible and evidence-based manner. And we need to know a great deal more than just the simple scope of surgical knowledge about staging and how to conduct a resection. We, we need that much, much broader oncology knowledge that is evolving now at an incredibly rapid pace. Not just educating our young learners, you know, whether they're med students, residents, fellows, um, but also acquiring that knowledge once you're well into practice. I always say I'm a robotic surgeon and and I say I'm a robotic surgeon because of you. I heard you give a presentation on robotic surgery and how you adopted robotic surgery. And I said to myself, well, if Dr. Roosh is doing it, maybe I should do it because she doesn't suffer fools. She's a very analytic and scientific person. So you've acquired multiple skills deep within to your career. Yeah, and I think this is part of our responsibility and, and what it means to be a thoracic surgeon today as opposed to 30 years ago. I mean, 30 years ago, or 40 years ago, you acquired a certain skill set and a certain knowledge base in thoracic surgery that remained relatively static through the course of your career. That's no longer the case. Uh, we have to be open to lifelong learning and lifelong skills acquisition, uh, even though sometimes that's really challenging and a little bit painful. So as you know, in my course of my career, I, I trained in an era where we did only open procedures. And over three and a half decades now, I've had to continuously acquire new skills including moving from open to VATS and VATS to robotic. And I, I don't think we just acquire and utilize new technology or new skills without thinking about them carefully, but it's very important to be open to new ideas, thoughtful about how we acquire new skills and, and employ them to take care of our patients, look at them in an evidence-based manner, uh, be nimble, be flexible. Uh, and, and that's certainly more so the case today than it was decades ago. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, be nimble, be flexible is sort of that liberal arts education that uh, it allows you to look at things from different perspectives and different points of view. You know, you have been a, a at first a great sponsor of me and then a mentor of mine. And, you know, I really appreciate that. There is a, a, a statement that I actually, I don't like, which says you can't be what you can't see. Yet you must've been one of few women in cardiothoracic surgery in your time coming up and have been quite successful. And 
it seems you, the different individuals who have been very influential in your career, Dr. Martini, Dr. Livingston, Dr. Ginsburg, and multiple others may not look like you or be from your same background if we stood you up in a lineup. It's something I like to call cross-demographic mentorship. You know, how did you experience this coming up and what do you do to pay this forward? Well, I think that the key to all of this is persistence and resilience. As a, a minority of sorts, I may be Caucasian, but was one of the, as you said, one of the very, very small number of women, extremely small number of women in cardiothoracic surgery when I started my career. My, both my parents, but particularly my mother, really was a strong believer in strong women and preached that all the time that I was growing up. And I knew that it would not be an easy path, but that I should not allow uh, obstructions to keep me back. And in fact, it's not been an easy path. There have been some individuals who've really been mentors and been very supportive, but others who have placed hurdles in my path. Fortunately, a lot of this is changing, uh, long overdue, especially in our specialty. But, um, and I, I have to say one thing that I've noticed as a senior surgeon interviewing potential trainees for CT residency is to the amazing degree to which many of the applicants are first-generation Americans. They come from families where they're the first ones to have opportunities in higher education, opportunities to be a highly respected professional. They know, they understand the importance of hard work in higher education. And uh, I think that's fantastic. And as I said in my, my presidential address as ACS president, that when I looked out over the room of roughly 1,900 new fellows, it was a vastly, vastly different sea of faces than it was 30 years ago. And that is actually to the benefit of the specialty of surgery in general, and especially to our patients. Uh, so I think it's been a wonderful transformation. There, there's still hurdles, but, it, but we're really in a time of wonderful transformation in the workforce. Uh, you, you mentioned your presidency at the ACS. What's next? You know, there's, you're using your language skills and your international skills to really kind of advance the success on the, on the international global surgery level. Right. So I'm working with the college in its international programs and hoping to really play a strong supportive role in that area. We started uh, actually when I was chair of the Board of Regents to develop a, a stronger focus on this area. And we now have a formal program collaborating with a number of institutions in sub-Saharan Africa to do uh, surgical capacity building and to teach on site, not as, a, not as a mission where you just sort of parachute in and appear for two weeks a year, but to teach on site on a continuum not only clinical skills, but also academic skills. And uh, I think it's a very exciting program. It's been pretty successful in its initial phases. And uh, so I'm hoping to really be very heavily involved in that. And you are specifically, uh, there's multiple sites, Ethiopia, Zambia, but you are specifically involved in Kigali, Rwanda. 
uh, and why that side? Well, the Rwandan government actually uh, reached out to the college and to Dr. Gurma Tafera, who's the head of Operation Giving Back, which is our international surgery program, because they have an interest in developing cardiothoracic surgery in that country, along with a couple of other specialties. And actually just had a, a meeting with some of the Rwandan representatives uh, up at the college headquarters earlier this week to really plan how we move forward with implementing that. So we view it as a tremendous opportunity to give back and to foster an important collaboration. So, you know, with the college and, and the STS, you know, if, if a lot of times I hear, especially in times now with dues and other and meetings and people aren't traveling anymore, what is the value of these surgical organizations like the American College of Surgeons, like the Society of Thoracic Surgeons? If I'm a, a young person looking at developing my career or I'm an advanced career person and, and saying, well, what is the value in, in everything that I do? What is the value of organizations like this and being participatory? Well, uh, you can't possibly do as a single individual what a large group of individuals does together. And uh, that is reflected in the quality of the educational programs. Uh, so that's a kind of personal payback, if you remember. And it's reflected in uh, the science of what's presented at the meetings. It's reflected in the opportunity to give back, especially if you are thinking about areas like global surgery as part of your career, if you're interested in that as a younger surgeon, or you're a senior surgeon, uh, someone like me, who really is a tail end of your career and has the opportunity to give back in a broader way. The organizations do other things for us that we couldn't possibly do ourselves. Obviously, there's a big public health and advocacy component to both the STS and the ACS that is uh, a, a directly important for us as practicing surgeons. So there, there are many, many aspects of larger organizations that are extremely important for our careers, for how we practice every day, and for uh, opportunities. Well, Val, I think your career has provided all of us a, a roadmap into what we can do to, to make an impact to our patients and our society. On that roadmap is Manhattan, Seattle, Houston, and Kigali. Not, not sure. We don't have to, to follow that map exactly, but it, it provides us with great insight. Thank you for taking the time to uh, speak with me today. And, and it's always exciting to talk with you. Well, thank you very much. Appreciate the opportunity to participate. This has been Same Surgeon, Different Life, a podcast brought to you by the Society of Thoracic Surgeons. Thank you for listening. If you like this podcast, please rate it five stars and let your friends, trainees, and colleagues know about it. On social media, you can use the hashtag, the face of CT surgery. More information about the Society of Thoracic Surgeons is available online at sts.org.